1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. A quick thank you to everyone who's left a rating or review on iTunes for me, Um, including in the last week. uh, I jumped up from 875 to 938 uh, at last glance, which is stupendous. If anyone out there who loves the show hasn't yet had a chance to leave a rating or review, please help me get to my goal of 1,000 ratings on iTunes. Appreciate it tremendously. Now let's get to the program. I'm excited to have with me today Rachel McCarthy James, co-author along with her father Bill James of the book The Man from the Train, the solving of a century-old serial killer mystery. In it, she and her father not only set out to solve The notorious Velasca Axe murders, but also a series of other killings across the country. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me about this.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Eric.
1: So, for those listening who don't know who your co author Bill James is, would you mind giving us a little biography, um, both of him and of you as well?
2: Of course. Uh, So, my co author, my dad, uh, Bill James, if you know him, it is probably from Moneyball. Uh, he's a baseball author who also works for the Red Sox, uh, but he's also, he's famous for his baseball obsession, but he's always been equally obsessed with crime. And in the last decade or so, he's been writing a lot more about that. Uh, his first book was Popular Crime, and that came out in, I think, 2009. And this is his second crime book um we both live in lawrence kansas i went to home university in roanoke virginia and i've written for bitch magazine mick sweeney's and "Hazlitt, among others in my day job i work in administrative support for climate scientists
1: this book is filled with a really disturbing series of murders spanning decades what was the research and writing process like for you for this book uh, what did you do what did your dad do How did you and your dad split your time?
2: Of course, uh, research is my favorite part of the writing process, and so I love talking about it as well. Uh, It really always fascinates me to see how people track down their ideas and try and uh, find out more about them. So we mostly worked separately, and then we would meet for breakfast to discuss the case. Uh, I actually am not a breakfast eater. I just like coffee, but my dad loves breakfast. So we would go to one of a few places, usually the Big Biscuit, and we would uh, compare notes, talk about our theories, overarching theories. Uh, Other than that, we mostly would send emails. Um, Both of us kind of like to have our own processes. So when he hired me, it was with the idea that I would go off and follow my own instincts, do my own things. Um, and figure out what it was that I wanted to find from this case, uh, not just following his direction. Um, so what, what I would basically do is I would find a case um, and I went about that a couple of different ways. At first, I just went backwards trying to find more crimes of the description um, that he initially gave me. And after I found enough, I realized that I needed to do it a little bit more methodically. Uh, so I started in, uh, January 1890 and tried to find every single family murder I could, uh, in the United States between 1890 and 1920. I went case by, went month by month, uh, searching the term family murder as well as a few other terms, uh, trying to find stories of these cases and then writing them down in a spreadsheet, keeping track of them and sending on the ones that looked likely, uh, to dad, whether it were because they were unsolved, or with an axe, or whatever. And he would judge the cases and then ask me a few more questions about them, usually, uh, discuss them with me, whether or not he thought it was likely. Sometimes he would think something was really likely at first, and then later on the process he thought, nah, not so much. And then he convinced me uh, with the SETCA murders in uh, Canada, especially. Uh, but usually what would happen is I would find the case, I would write it up in a kind of narrative and give him the newspapers that were relevant to it, and he would work it into a longer chapter, so it's about eighty percent his voice, um, and then I come in a little bit here and there, but it's hopefully uh, not too jarring for the reader. I tried to mimic his voice as much as possible, so hopefully I'm the only one who can recognize the little paragraphs that uh um, that came from the emails I initially wrote to him.
1: I do want to ask you about the the unique voice that is used in this book yes because it's it's different. <laughs> than other styles in this genre.
2: Yeah, it is.
1: You speak directly to the reader at at various points. Um, Why why did you choose to do it this way?
2: Uh, That is dad's voice, which is very distinctive. You know, a couple of times I've gotten some pushback about it. And, um, you know, it's not my voice exactly. It's very much my dad's and sometimes me trying to imitate it pretty well, I think. and you know, some people have pushed back because it's uh it's very folksy. it's very uh it's very conversational, um, sometimes a little bit too conversational, some people think. And sometimes I think that too. Uh but you know, Dad really has his own voice. That's one thing I really admire about his writing, uh, is that it's very distinctively him. Um and I think in a lot of people who have gone through MFAs and done a ton of workshops and really polish their voice into something shiny. You know, that's really great to read, and I enjoy reading that. Um, But Dad really has his own voice, and that's one thing that I really enjoy about his writing is that it's very distinctively him.
1: Absolutely. So with so many gruesome murders to cover, and there really are a lot in this book. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been emotionally draining at the end of a day of research.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, at, there is an acclimation process. And I once you get to know the cases and get past the details and start looking for them and other things, if you're expecting to find them there, it lessens the, I think, uh, emotional turmoil that comes up with it when you initially start researching it because it is hard. It's, you know, it's a lot of awful details to process and uh, think about and try and weave into a narrative. Um, but it's it's not easy to stomach. And you know what? That's why I mostly worked in the mornings after a few months of working on it. I At first, I was doing my usual thing of working at all hours of the day, um, but that became problematic after a while. So I started just working in the morning because it is harder to get depressed in the morning because you have a lot of light and sunshine and it's, uh, you know, plenty of time left in the day, harder to get down on yourself. Um, and I, so I would do that in the morning and then in the afternoon I would work in an after school program down the street of my old elementary school and that was much more active and fun than sitting in a chair uh, looking at a thousand old newspapers a day looking for the same details. Um, and then I would give myself a break from the case at night and just do something else. So I I had a I was pretty careful about managing it. Um, I, you know, took care of myself for sure while I was while I was working on this. Did you
1: ever have bad dreams?
2: <laughs> um, I have bad I have bad dreams anyway. I never really had any specific serial killer dreams though. So, um, that's never been something that super scares me because. I don't know, especially with this book, If for the most part, if this guy broke into your house, you were dead. Um, And it was kind of like, well, if I am going to go out by a serial killer, they're probably pretty determined and I don't have a lot of say in that. So I'm just going to write off that whole possibility and make that deal with myself. Because it's not that common and, you know, there's no reason to think about fixate on it. It's just one of those things you have to manage, I guess.
1: Well, you don't live on an isolated farm, at least.
2: <laughs> no, but I do live extremely close to the train tracks, like very closer than any book in this house. Uh, and I moved there, I moved into this house right as I was uh, starting work on this case. So it was very creepy at first working on this book about, uh, that was so specifically tried to looking for train tracks and then hearing the train go by uh, three times a day as it does.
1: Yeah so jumping right into your book here um we obviously can't go over all of the the murders the massacres in your book we'd be here for hours and hours there are a few though that i would like to ask you about in more detail and i'd like to start with the velasca axe murders in southwestern iowa as you spend a lot of time covering this case and it's also one of the most notorious in american history So neighbors made a grisly discovery at the Moore House on the morning of June 10th, 1912. Isn't that right?
2: Absolutely. Um, So J.D. Moore was a really popular guy around town. He was the owner of a local John Deere dealership. He had um, very friendly, sometimes a little too friendly, but he was a guy who didn't have a lot of enemies. He and his wife, Sarah, had four children of their own, and on the night before June 10th, June 9th, 1912, the whole family had been at a children's day service at church. Um, they had a nine-year-old daughter named Catherine who asked her friends, Lena and Ina Stillinger, to join them that night for a sleepover, which sounded fun, um, I'm sure, to both of them. Uh That night, the constable saw a man walking through the park towards the Moore house and thought to shine his light on his face, but did not end up doing so. The next morning, they did not come out and perform their chores. I'm going to read if that's okay.
1: Yes, sure.
2: About 7 a.m. Monday morning, a neighbor noticed that no one was stirring outside the Moore house. The moors had two horses, two cows, and some chickens, all of which needed attention but the chickens had been squawking in their coop. The Stillinger girls had not called home after daybreak, as they had been told to do. The neighbor knocked on the door, but the door was locked and there was no answer. She let the chickens out of their coop and called Joe Moore's brother, Ross Moore. Ross Moore checked on the livestock and encircled in the house, banging on windows, trying to see in the windows and yelling out to see if anyone would answer. The neighbor returned. Ross unlocked the front door and or forced it open. The house inside was very neat and entirely clean, but tainted with a foul odor and a terrible stillness. Across the parlor there was a small bedroom, called the parlor bedroom, where Catherine Moore normally slept, although on this night she was upstairs with her brothers. Ross Moore opened the door to the parlor bedroom, saw blood everywhere, and the bodies of the two young girls, obviously bludgeoned to death. He staggered back across the porch, and moments later, sitting on the steps of the front porch, what are these exact words that appear in countless crime books? Something terrible has happened. So this was completely out of the blue, but it because of the horribleness of this crime, it embroiled this community in a debate that is still raging to this day, basically. Um, there's still debate over whether it was our man, the man from the train, or whether it was Frank Jones, um, or another creepy minister named George Kelly. In every major crime case that becomes kind of an event, there's always going to be someone who gloms onto the case, becomes too creepily obsessed with it, and eventually inserts themselves into it. And in this case, it's the Reverend George Kelly, who was this kind of itinerant weirdo who uh, confessed to the case and whose trial afterwards became a big moment for the town. So in most of these cases, I did the bulk of research, which was mostly tracking down as many old newspaper reports about it as I possibly could. Um, But with the later cases and with especially Valeska, the research has already been done in large part. And what wasn't done before I came on the case was basically performed by my dad. He really was the one who got to know the Valeska case, especially in really great detail. Um, because there's so much written about it. It's been written subject of a number of books. There's a really good documentary about it. Um, and I would say we're not even the main experts on Valeska. I would say that's Dr. Ed- Edgar Epperly, who has been fascinated with the case for decades and decades. Um, but it's there's a reason that he became so fascinated by it, and that's because so many weird characters come into it that are woven from forgotten parts of American culture, I think. So Kelly was essentially traveling across churches in the Midwest taking seminary classes and kind of hobbling together a preaching career. And he was at the Children's Day services and after that became uh, was sleeping a block away at the house of a minister and he became obsessed with it after the fact. Uh, the way, you know, you see a lot of people still to this day who have this over-fascination with specific crimes. And sometimes it can lead into a place where you get too involved into it and it uh, kind of sucks you in. And that's what happened with him. Eventually he began to not be able to distinguish his fantasies of the case from the reality of it and uh, had a bit of a mental break and afterwards was put on trial and was eventually exonerated I mean, even back then, they a lot of their knowledge, they weren't watching lawyer television shows, so they didn't know a lot of these tricks and trades that sometimes I'm sure people who go through the process now would know. But they still knew a false confession when they heard one and saw a man in the grips of mental illness uh, when they saw one. So I think that's what happened with him. I don't consider the case against him to be super credible.
1: He called himself a reverend, but I can't remember whether he was actually a real reverend or not.
2: No, he wasn't. He was never—no, he was not.
1: You said he was working at at the church. Did did he give lessons to the Moors?
2: I don't think so. No, I'm—as I I said, I'm not super familiar with the details of Reverend Kelly, especially. But, um, no, I I think he was just hanging around, like, trying to— uh, getting in good with a preacher and taking classes. And uh, Dad describes him as an intern in here, and I think that's pretty accurate.
1: The other question I have about this case relates to Frank Jones. He was a suspect that a lot of people are still convinced was the real murderer. Uh,
2: yeah, a lot of people still think that Frank Jones did it. I met with some of the, some relatives of Sarah Moore, uh, last spring and they expressed the view they were still, they still believe that Frank Jones did it. And I understand that because it's really hard to comprehend the scale of this crime. And when something like that happens, you don't look for the almost supernatural sounding Logic of a serial killer did it of somebody came in and just randomly killed people just for his own reason, you look at revenge, you look at personal grudges, you look for motive basically um, and I think that's why so many people have uh, focused on Frank Jones, and I understand that um, I understand how you know people become invested in an idea and want to don't want to be proven wrong. Um, certainly, I will go through that, I'm sure, <laughs> at some point with this uh, book. Somebody will want to prove me wrong, and I won't want to be proven wrong with one case or another. Um, but I just don't see the Frank Jones explanation as credible. I mean, the scale of this case is beyond what I could imagine. Someone who is functioning normally in society and has no other tendencies towards violence as Frank Jones did not. Um, you know, I can understand if it were just J.D. Moore who was murdered that Frank Jones did it out of a want for revenge, out of the business rivalry, out of whatever. Uh, but to kill six children is another matter altogether. Um, it's hard for me to believe that you could even pay someone to do that, uh, in that time period. You didn't have you no know, Want to be assassins quite the same way you do, uh, you know, there were no soldier, for, soldier fortune ads and people who, uh, dark web ability to hire horrible, horrible criminals. Um, so I just don't think that Frank Jones would have done it himself. I don't think that Frank Jones would have hired anybody to do it based on his rivalry, rivalry with J.D. Moore. I just don't think he would have killed those kids. Um, yeah, and especially in such a horrible, desecrating way.
1: And that's generally considered to be the motive. Um, This rivalry between them. Moore first worked for Jones in his hardware store and eventually began his own, siphoning off business from Jones.
2: Yeah. And I think there was a rumor about maybe Moore was getting up to something with Jones' wife, you know, which are all, you know, reasons for Jones to hate Moore, but I just can't see. I mean, and that's just looking at it individually. That's without taking into consideration all the ways in which this very well-detailed crime fits up with a lot of other detailed uh, descriptions of crimes across the country. Um, So, yeah, obviously I have a vested interest, but I do not think that Frank Jones did it.
1: I mean, it makes no sense on the surface.
2: I mean, I don't want to, but at the same time, I don't want to, there are people who are probably still there are, I know there are people who are still, whose families felt the impact of it uh through the generations. And I don't want to say it's silly to have believed that. I understand how that fits into the logic a little bit more than some horrible man riding the rails. But I just don't think it was, but Frank Jones had relatives too, and he's got descendants too. And I've I don't think he did it. You know, his store is still there. I saw it. I went to Valeska um, this summer, and his store is still standing. It still says the Jones store, big, tall, white letters on a blue background.
1: Yeah, I guess what I don't understand is that if you hate someone so much, I mean, killing that person, of course, is terrible and extreme and wrong, but it's still different than massacring an entire family over what, business, a possible affair? I mean, how does someone get to something's just so gruesome and horrible as massacring an entire family?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And to do it silently without anybody noticing till the next day, that's cold-blooded stuff there. And that's what we were, part of what we were, uh, you know, when we were researching these cases, that's part of what we were looking for is this uh, kind of horrible professionalism um, the way he was able to dispatch these families fairly quickly and silently, uh, and obviously extremely brutally and bloodily.
1: And now a quick word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You, you point out in your book um, the stark differences in how the Velasquez murders were treated by the press from the Paola Axe murders, which, which happened really close by and just days apart. The Velasca axe murders are internationally known. The town of Velasca's tourism industry centers around them. But, but it's interesting that other slayings happen not that far away, but, but they're treated far differently, uh, both then and now.
2: Well, first of all, they're, uh, but not very far away from where I live. I've been there multiple times. It's about four hours away from Valeska by car. So it's not super, super close, but it is a pretty quick trip on a train, more so than a lot of the separations in a lot of these cases. But I think Valeska is really an outlier in a lot of ways, and the way in which it is most an outlier is that it is uh, it was so well-remembered and well-recorded and debated for so long after it happened. You know, we've got dozens of cases in this book, and none of them have, that are all just about as horrible as the murder of the Moore and Stillingers, Sillingers, um, but none of them have had this kind of long-lasting legend attached to them. Um, it's really exceptional, so it's kind of hard to compare, say, why, pay, why not Paola? Well, why not the Brookfield murders, the San Antonio murders, or the Colorado Springs murders? Why were they not as well-remembered as Valeska? Valeska is really the outlier here. But with Paola, I think part of it, um, you know, there's a lot of different – local journalism was really inconsistent back then. Not all cases were reported equally. Uh, some of them are just third-hand newspaper reports to the point that we are not confident about the names of the victims. You know, spelling was less standardized back then, yes, and that's an issue we face with every one of these cases. Um, but in one family we don't know if their name was Kelly or Kathy or Smith. Uh with the Ackermans, we don't know the names of the first names of most of the family members. Both those are out of Florida, which does not have a lot of surviving local journalism that we had access to. Um sometimes, like I said, it's lack of surviving local journalism, sometimes it's classism or racism, uh, sometimes it's questions of the reaction of the community. Um, With Paola versus Valeska, I think it's partially about scale. Uh, In Paola, two people died. It was a young couple, Roland and Anna Hudson. And in Valeska, there were six children brutally murdered, devastating multiple families. That's just going to cause more of an outrage and spur on more coverage than uh, the murder of two other people, two uh, young people without children would.
1: Yes, that makes sense. So so back then, locals were consumed with, uh, in not only the Velasca murders, but in the others that you read about, um, they were consumed with finding a member of the community responsible for the crime. I guess it's easy easier to blame someone locally, especially when the demand for justice in the community is, is so strong. But there was a concern amongst some reporters and others that the killers responsible for their own town's tragedy might have been connected to other ones across the country
2: yeah um they didn't have a framework for serial killers so it took them a long time to catch on but in 1912 especially he was increasing his pace 1911 and 1912 he was killing a lot more frequently than he was earlier in the decade. Um, and also the speed of technology was increasing as well. Newspapers were more interconnected. There were more wire services, et So they So there was an awareness that there was someone, they called him Billy the Axeman, uh, traversing the
1: country. So you set out in your book to prove that a single serial killer was responsible for dozens and dozens of murders across America. But first, of course, you had to find the commonalities among them all to link them to him. What were these similarities across all of these cases in general that that led you to believe that you were dealing with one individual?
2: Well, a lot of the groundwork had been laid before I got onto the case. I already had a pretty uh, well-described framework to work with it. I already had several examples. Um, you know, there is a great Smithsonian piece that lays out all the similarities between Valeska and the other cases, Paola, Colorado Springs, uh, Washington, et cetera. Um, and also, I want a uh, uh, paper by a woman named Beth Clingham-Smith, who uh, wrote a paper for her Master's of Library Science degree um, for Wichita State University, an online course she was taking. Uh, she wrote this incredible paper that really lays out a lot of similarities, and it had a second life online and took off uh, from there, and that became a foundational document for us. Uh, but what we were looking for, so I already knew what to look for, and it was basically this. A family is murdered in their beds within a short distance of the railroad track near the hour of midnight with the blunt side of the axe without any warning in or near a small town uh, with not much of a police presence, uh, without a robbery or any clear motive and without any obvious suspect afterwards. So those were the things that I was basically looking for. But we, you know, there's a lot of different cases in here and some of them we don't have, uh, we have more detail and we can see the commonalities between those cases as well. He would often uh, remove the lamp, the chimney of the lamp that he was using, he would lock up the doors. He would, uh, cover the bodies with cloth. And so when we saw one of those, we had a much closer, much clearer case for it being connected. But we talk about a lot of cases that we're not quite as sure about in here. And because we did not see, you know, I looked at a lot of different murders from this time period and, um, there was a difference between one where Three members of a family were killed by an uncle. The motive was an inheritance, or uh, it was a servant who was doing it out of revenge or something like that. Um, when we saw one that was without a whole family, especially, and without um, any motive or apparent warning, that's what really made us take notice, as well as the phrase, the most horrible crime that has ever been committed in this area. That was a big word for us.
1: So you look for crimes that didn't have obvious motives. But but there must have been a motive in all of these, these murders for the man on the train. What do you think his motive might have been in doing what he did?
2: I mean, um, some people are just... What his motive was, he wanted to kill. I just think that it was a compulsion for him. I think it's something that he enjoyed and got a sick fulfillment out of, and, you know, it's hard if you're not the murdering type, it's hard to, I think, understand that allure, but that's something that we should be glad for. It's uh, something that I can't understand to be sure.
1: And there was a sexual component to all of this as well, right?
2: Yeah, there was a sexual component. He, there was evidence of masturbation at a lot of these, uh, the scenes of these crimes. So that was an element as well, that it was how he sated his love.
1: We will be right back. Again, we can't go into every single family massacre you believe might be connected to your killer. But based on your profile of him, what examples would you give of murders that you are absolutely convinced were done by this man? Uh,
2: The ones that we are, I would say, I would say very sure of, 90% or more sure of, uh, the Newtons. In 1898, uh, the first one, uh, the Liarleys uh, the Hughes, those were, uh, the families in South Carolina and I believe Georgia, um, in which people were lynched there so- shortly after. The Meadows and the Hoods who were in, uh, southwestern Virginia and West Virginia. Uh, the Schultzes and the Castaways who were both in, uh, Texas the Hills, the Burnhams, the Waynes, Dawson's, Showman's, Hudson's, and finally the Moore's. So those are the ones that we're very sure of, um, and that's a 59 people total. And then there's uh, some that we're a little less sure of. Some of the ones that I just listed, dad's more sure of than I am, um, but those are the ones that we're overall very confident about. Then there's ones that we're slightly less sure about, the Allens, uh, the Kellys and the that I mentioned earlier in Florida, as well as the Akermans. Um, and that's largely because we just don't have enough detail about the crime. In some cases, we've got less than a hundred words. So those are the ones where we just, we feel that it fits his, his pattern and where he was in that, in that frame of his, uh, life, but we're not quite positive about it because we don't have the same details of the crime scene uh, or other surviving details. And then there are some where it basically looks like him, but there are other people who are suspected uh, or there are certain details that are off, uh, wrong time of day, for example, or being too far, a little too far from the train. Uh, and. So there's a lot of different, it's in total. We it at, our best estimate is 101 victims.
1: Do you think that any of them might've been copycats?
2: I think that's a possibility, especially with the black family murders in um, the 1910s and 1911s. Uh, there's definitely more than one person who is killing families there. Um, But it's similar enough that you have to wonder if, for example, uh, some racists decide to see that this campaign is going on against Black families and decide that they want to take that opportunity to get away with some horrible crimes. Um, And it could just be somebody else that was operating during that time and time period. It's hard to say. So I don't think... Copycat murders is something that we can't rule out, Um, but with some of them, it would be hard for him to copycat the exact details because they're so spaced out uh, over the course of 14 years or so.
1: And you mentioned the, the time of day. You write in your book that he typically committed his murders just before or just after midnight.
2: Around midnight, yes. Um, uh, Definitely after dark, uh, but well before dawn. So between midnight and two usually. Sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. Uh, Definitely not in the daytime. If we saw a crime that was in the daytime, that was one thing that would just immediately rule it out. I wouldn't even bother sending it on to Dad.
1: And this killer that you've identified doesn't have anything to do with the Axeman of New Orleans, right?
2: No, we don't think that he was the X-Man of New Orleans. Um, the x of New Orleans, he did not kill people like he had the benefit of 14 years of practice uh, killing people. He was very messy. He was very um, random in how he would strike. So I'm not an expert on the Axman of New Orleans, but I trust dad with that when he said definitely not him.
1: So I'd like to, if you don't mind, get more specific on a handful of these cases. One that's especially intriguing is the the double event that happened in Colorado Springs. Sure. Uh, So the
2: double event happened happened on September 17th or 18th, 1911 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, I have been to the site of these crimes. One of the houses still, both of the houses still stand, actually. Uh, they are maybe 50 yards from each other and currently 50 yard, like no more than 100 yards from a rail trail bicycle track, which was, of course, at the time a railroad track. Uh, very small little houses. If the... The uh, address is in here, and I went and visited it before the publication of this book. And immediately someone saw me on the street looking around at these houses and said, oh, you're here for the uh, the murder houses. Yeah, there's been a bunch of ghost shows here and showed me exactly where it was. Um, they're still standing. There's a couple of dog out. There's a dog outside in one of them and, and toys in the front yard. And who knows if it's even changed that much since uh, 1911. So in this incident in September 1911, uh, it was the Burnhams and the Waynes. And in both cases, there's the same details we have everywhere. Blunt side of an axe, killed in their sleep, door locked afterwards. Um, and a double event is fairly common for, is not uncommon for serial killers. Uh, the most famous example being Jack the Ripper, who uh, committed a, uh, double events in wet London's West end on September 30th, 1888.
1: And another quick word from our sponsor. And again, back to the show. At one point you write that if you are ever 100% certain that two of the murder events in your book were done by the same killer, um, they would be the ones in Alaska, Iowa, and the ones in san antonio texas right
2: uh, that's one of the i would say the ones that i that are kind of the that i always come back to as the best examples of a man from the train crime are uh the murder of the newtons in brookfield massachusetts in 1898 uh the murder of the Casaways in san antonio in 18 in 1911 and then of course the valeska murders so those are the ones where we have a high level of detail about the scene of the crime and, for whatever reason, have just really stuck with me. With the Castaways in San Antonio, um, Louis Castaway was a really intriguing figure. He uh, was, you know, in most of these cases, I would try and research the family members and try and find something, and usually I wouldn't come up with too much. But with Louis Castaway, there's a ton of detail about his life. Uh, in the years before his death. Uh, we have records of him getting a promotion from uh, janitor to porter at City Hall on the front page of the San Antonio Light. Uh, there's details about his 36th birthday party. Um, it talks about him raising money for a gymnasium. In 1898 as well, he uh, was involved in a dispute in the local Republican, Party in San Antonio. Uh, the Black Caucus within the party walked out over a disagreement, and then later uh, both sides came together to record a uh, statement of resolution and unity. And Lewis Castaway was listed as being part of the person behind that, one of the people behind that. We know a lot about his uh, family. He was married to a white woman with, named Elizabeth Castaway, born Elizabeth Castlow. Um, and she was very young at the time, and their uh, their elopement caused uh, quite a stir, but they were able to live peacefully and carve out a nice life for themselves. They had three kids. He was the uh, janitor at the local school, and, um, yeah, that one sticks with me. Uh, but the details in those crimes, I mean, we've got a lot of his signature elements, the uh, door being locked up, the lamp being left off, the chimney being left off the lamp, uh, moving of dead bodies afterwards, killing with the blood side of the axe. It's just a lot of his, uh, everything we look for in the crimes that he committed.
1: So you laid out an approximate timeline for the man on the train. There are some gaps, some years where no murders are committed. Do you have an explanation for that?
2: No, we don't. Um, we looked for him in prison records, but he was probably using a different name than the one that we know at that point. Um, so, no, we don't have any explanation for that. It's possible that some crimes um, were committed during that time and we just missed it. He might have been uh, in jail or prison. He uh, might have been on work assignment somewhere else. Uh, we just don't know what was happening in 1907 and 1908.
1: I'd love it if you could talk about the moment when you realized that you had a, a real suspect. How did you find Paul Mueller?
2: Uh, the night before, I had been working on the case for a couple of months at that point, and Dad had told me that at some point I would go back far enough that I would find the first murder. Uh, the night before I found the Newton crime, I emailed Dad and asked exactly what he meant by that, and he said, Something will be different about the crime. There will be something that basically exposes his inexperience at that point. So the night that I found him, um, I just moved back to Kansas. There was a train going by all night that I wasn't used to at all. And uh, my husband left me alone so we could go to a concert. And I was looking at another murder uh, that did not end up in the pages of this book. Uh, It was in Maine. And there was a lot of back and forth about, uh, where this guy was and I was trying to track him down. And one of the related cases, related stories about it, I think it was in the North Adams transcript. It said at the very end of this, uh, the very end of it, the person who did this, I'm paraphrasing, the person who did this is surely the same fiend behind, uh, the murder of the Newton family in North Brookfield, uh, two years ago. I had found this Google book, which was the history of the police department from 1600 to 1904. And in it was a description of the Newton family murder um, in North Brookfield, Massachusetts, 18, in 1898, January 1898. And I was reading through it, and it had all the details that at that point I had uh, known to look for. Uh, the doors were locked up. Back of the axe was used. Full family with no known enemies, most horrible crime ever committed, et cetera. And at the end of that, it said, the person responsible is surely uh, Francis Newton's handyman, Paul Mueller, who was last seen headed for the train. And at that point, I knew that I had something. Um, I tried to get my dad on the phone. My dad does not pick up the phone, but I tried to call him several times anyway. He was in Boston at the time, so he didn't return my calls. So I wrote him a bunch of emails. The first one I remember was I used a ton of qualifiers to describe what I was found. I might possibly maybe could have found a potential uh, culprit for these crimes. And so I laid out my case, and he wasn't convinced right away. He wrote back that I'm going to have to look at this further, and we can't be sure that this is what it is. But this is certainly an intriguing narrative to have somebody whose name is actually attached um, was a big thing in the case because we really didn't have a name prior to that.
1: Did you have a backup plan? What if you hadn't found a suspect? Do you think you would have still written the book?
2: I have no idea. That's a good question. I think probably we would have because we didn't really... Dad was not really super expecting me to find the actual first crime, he was expecting me to find more crimes of the description um so that he could I think he probably would have written a book about it. I don't know, it might have just ended up being an article on his website or something like that. Uh, I do think he would have written about it. I don't think I would have been a co-author if he if I hadn't found Paul Mueller. Um, but if the book still might have come to pass, it might not have. It's kind of hard to say. You know, being a writer, there, you start on a lot of projects and you put a lot of work into them and then not all of them actually pan out. But I think dad probably would have done something with this.
1: There are no known illustrations or photographs of him, but, but there are some physical descriptions, right?
2: Yes, he was a short man uh, with widely spaced teeth, had an angry expression all of the time. And uh, I think there are some descriptions of scars on his face and hands as well.
1: In the case of the Brookfield murders, the Newton family massacre, it was assumed that he was simply a disgruntled worker, right? Angry about something.
2: Yeah, that's what it, I mean, that's, I think, what it would have had to have been. Um Francis Newton was not known to be a super warm and friendly guy. Uh, Several people said that he was in the habit of speaking sharply to his employees. Um, So it's certainly possible that there was a personal grudge, but I don't think you can blame Newton for that. He didn't know that he was lodging a
1: murderer. It's interesting because you have enough there. There are enough eyewitness accounts that place him at the train station. details about his demeanor. I mean, it really brings the story to life. I mean, it gives a face to the evil.
2: It's really vivid to see. It was really shocking to see, kind of see the uh, forerunners of what he would do later, him refining his technique and getting better at getting away with it. Um, You know, in the first case, as with many cases, he attacked someone who... To whom he was personally known after that left that off. But the fact that so many people saw him walking to the train station, uh, being at the train station saw him take putting on a hat and then taking it off to distract him later. And the police really chased down a lot of weird leads. Uh, they were really focused on whether or not he got lunch at a specific counter somewhere, um, not long after it. And it, you know, at that point he was already long gone. You know, it's funny because we talk a lot about the inadequate police departments in these cases and how they were completely unprepared to deal with a monster of this of this capacity for violence. Um, But the the train train companies actually had train detectives who would have been much better at tracking him down based on a physical description. Of course, in his later crimes, they didn't have a physical description, but if they'd worked with the trained detectives on that first one, who knows, maybe they would have been able to catch him.
1: As far as the murders of the Newtons, were there any differences between these murders and the ones that came later?
2: Yeah, there was a significant difference. So in the first 10 years he was killing people, he would usually set fire to the houses afterwards. He would do this to probably burn up the evidence, probably distract people while he was getting away as well. In Brookfield, he tried to do this. Uh, He threw, he soaked a, um, he soaked uh, a pile of wood with gasoline and threw a lamp at it. But the lamp failed to catch fire. So not only did the house not catch, catch on fire, the entire scene was preserved, which allowed us to link us, link him to later cases in a way that we couldn't with some of these other ones where he successfully set the building on fire afterwards.
1: So in your book, you theorize that he may have gone to Germany at some point and committed a very famous crime there.
2: Um, so, Paul Mueller was a German sailor. That's one of the things we know about him fairly for sure, if we know anything. You know, we know he was short. We know he worked for the Newtons. We know that he was a surly guy based on the early reports. Not much have known, was known of him personally, except that he was a German sailor or claimed to be. Um, so in the 1920s, there was a murder of a family at a farmhouse in um, Kaifek about 70 miles north of Munich, Um, and we don't, we're not experts on this case, but the broad outlines are a lot like um, the Valeska and Newton and other murders um, that we think were committed by the man from the train. So that's not one of the ones that we're super sure about, but we think it is one clue as to what he may have done afterwards.
1: Has anyone approached you about turning this into a movie or a television series? Yes,
2: we are developing one right now. I can't say too much about it right now, but we're uh, developing a television series. Um, we recently did some work on that. We're really looking forward to seeing if we can get it made.
1: It's got to be a little tricky. Shows shows like this typically have some sort of heroic figure, some investigator that tracks the bad guy.
2: Well, I mean, uh, there's a big appetite for true crime these days, and... You know, I would, uh, you know, I think people are fascinated just by the cases within themselves. And, you know, there's not one hero in this, but there's a lot of little heroes of this. There's a lot of people who were leading lives that deserve to be remembered for something more than their death. So I think there's a lot, a lot we can dig in on narratively there if we get the ch- chance to explore this on the small screen.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I guess there are a lot of ways that this could be produced for television.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I, uh, I'm a writer. I'm not, uh, I don't make, I'm not a producer or anything. So they'll have a lot of ways about how, it's a very difficult story to tell. It was one that we puzzled over quite a bit when we were trying to write the book as to how to approach it and make it, um, uh, digestible and not horrifying, not just endless misery. Um, so I hope that we, uh, so I'm looking forward to that process, for sure.
1: Have you traveled to any of these communities? I know you already mentioned going to Colorado Springs. H- have you been to Velasca as, as well?
2: Yes, I've been to Velasca once. Uh, I spoke to a conference of judges there. Um, they had me to speak, and I had a lot of very good, productive conversations with them. Um, I talked to Dr. Eckerle, which was a great great chance to get that opportunity um and it was it's was been a warm reception i think that they really see the merit of what we're saying here they also see its limitations but um that's not a bad thing so i think the reception has been pretty good i did go to colorado because met beth Smith who i mentioned earlier uh actually lives there but only one person came to my reading so i didn't really get a set, good sense of the community i had a conversation with the um Descendants of Sarah Moore, not descendants, the relatives of Sarah Moore. Uh, and that was, you know, we had a good conversation, a productive conversation. I don't know if they've entirely, um, bought into what I have to say, but of course that's their prerogative. Uh, one thing that was surprising to me is, uh, a young man I knew from high school, uh, basketball star from high school, um, believes he may be, uh, related to one of the men who was lynched in North Carolina for these crimes, uh, which is a very sobering connection to find, but certainly a reminder of how many lives this affected and how many communities it affected over, uh, the po- over all of America.
1: I can totally understand how difficult it must have been to organize your book. As someone who reads a lot of true crime books for this show, there is a pretty obvious pattern for most. First a crime, then an investigation, and finally a trial. There's a fairly predictable arc. (laughs) So while reading this, I understood how incredibly vast and complex your subject was, is the fact that you were able to organize it into something cohesive and readable. I mean, with a climax at the end, kudos to you for that.
2: That's all credit to Dad. That was entirely Dad's invention, his organization, that was entirely his idea. And it's so difficult to uh, arrange in a readable way, and I really think he did a great job with that.
1: Have you gathered any new evidence since the book came out?
2: I haven't focused on it a ton since we uh, turned it in and began the process of editing, oh, two or three years now. Um, so I and, you know, the thing about this book is that there's, there's so many murders that It becomes hard to keep track of them, especially when you're not actively in the process of researching them and finding out more about them and uh, working on what you've already written about them. Some people have come to us with some interesting evidence, but so far, nothing that has really changed the narrative arc so far that I've seen. Uh, I think my dad has talked to somebody who has found the um, immigration records for Paul Mueller. So I, that's one thing that I'm really excited to see. But I expect we'll be um, looking at some new evidence once we, uh, if this television show sells, and I think that we'll be looking at the evidence with a fresh eye and probably gathering new evidence and new resources uh, for that project. I did, one thing I did find actually, uh, I completely forgot this, one thing I did find is I was answering questions for something a while ago, and I happened to Google the Newton crimes, and I found somebody who um, found pictures of the Newton family uh, and posted them on his little local history website, completely unaware that this had any connection to it until after the Manson frame came out. Um, so that was one thing that was neat to find. Thereafter, was these pictures of these people who we hadn't before. In a lot of these cases, you know, we know what the Moors and the Stillingers looked like. But with a lot of these other cases, we didn't have any d- any photographs of them or any other uh, sketches of them. So that was one thing that was exciting to see.
1: This seems to be a, a book that would be ripe for a second edition <laughs> a few years down the road.
2: Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe. I've got, I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping my next book will be uh, my own project. But yeah, I would like to see another edition. I'd really like to see another edition with more maps and charts. I think that was something that was missing from the, uh the editions that are out right now. Yeah. I would really like to go into it and do a second edition, but that it'll be a lot of work. So we'll have to see about that.
1: Sure. Sure. Is your next book something true crime related?
2: Yes. It is true crime related. Um, it's, a little bit broader than the man from the train, um, but it, it is true crime related. But uh, I, I'll, I'll hopefully have something to announce there soon.
1: So your dad has is, is kind of sucked you into the genre, huh? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Uh you know, I've got a lot of di- there's a lot of different interesting ways to go with it. Um yeah, yeah. So I, I it's a it's a really rich field. Uh lots of intersections with history and um so I'm excited to keep working
1: there. So your books are pretty much available anywhere books are sold.
2: If you want to order a signed copy, you can get one from the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas, and they sell copies online.
1: And for anyone who wants to contact you directly with questions or additional information, is there a way that they can do that?
2: Uh, Yes, I think the easiest way, I really need to get a website together, the easiest way uh, to get in touch with me right now uh, is probably just to look at my Twitter page. Just Google Rachel McCarthy James Twitter, um, and my uh, email is in my header there. So um, you can contact me through Twitter or just send me an email there. Uh, My email is rmccarthyjames at gmail.com. So if you'd like to get in touch, please do.
1: Well, Well, thanks again. This has been so interesting.
2: Thanks so much, Eric. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance.